Welcome now to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In a recent op-ed piece in the New York Times, philosopher Michael Lynch reminds us that in this age of increasing polarization, uh, we don't seem to agree even over the facts. We now disagree, he reminds us, not to, just over things like whether God exists or if abortion is morally permissible, but over the size of crowds, basic budget math, the safety of vaccines, and whether the fact that climate change, uh, climate is changing is something to worry about. And he goes on to say the causes of those divisions are complex, but one is surely the increasing personalization of our online lives. Uh, Michael Lynch uh, is featured in a new TED Talk on finding common reality. In his talk, he explains the future of how we know information is true. He says just because we can Google information doesn't mean the information is accurate. Even more surprising, he explains how we are not just polarized in our opinions or values, but in the facts that we learn. He says smart people at places like Google and Facebook are working to fix our technology, but uh, the problem isn't necessarily fixable through technology. In fact, we need to solve the problem of knowledge polarization, he says, by understanding that we live in a common reality. He goes on to explain how we can do that. Uh, Michael Lynch is uh, pl- a professor of philosophy, director of humanities at the University of Connecticut. He's leading UConn's hum- Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project, and he's the author most recently of The Internet of Us, Knowing More and Understanding Less in the Age of Big Data. Professor Lynch, welcome to the program. Well, thanks so much for having me. We appreciate you uh, taking the time. Um, interesting TED Talk uh, just out, and a very interesting book, The Internet of Us. I want to get into all of that. I want to start, however, with your uh, piece uh, where you distill some of these ideas in, in the New York, New York Times. Uh, it's their uh, sure. blog uh, called The Stone, I think, where they have uh, invite That's philosophers right. such as yourself to uh, expound on the problems of the, of the day. Um and as I said at the open, uh, you you remind us, and we, we're all living in this world that we're increasingly polarized, not just in disagreeing on our values, but over the very facts themselves. And this is troubling, of course, uh, to too many. Um, I wonder if you could uh, we could start where you start in this piece, a uh, argument between Samuel uh, Johnson and George Berkeley. Sure. Uh, I mean, it's a it's. It's, uh, it's a, in a way, a sort of uh, uh, funny place to start this sort of conversation, but I think uh, it illustrates um, some of the problems that we're facing right now. George Barclay was an Irish philosopher in the 18th century, in the modern period, and he believed that uh, basically uh, everything we perceive was actually an idea, that there really was no what we would call a physical world. Uh, the only things that existed were ideas and and minds. And Samuel Johnson, the famous literary critic, um, kicked a rock and said, thus I refute him, uh, <laughs> to his famous biographer Boswell. And, you know, I always sort of thought that that was the sort of showed that Samuel Johnson should have stuck with literary criticism and left the philosophy to the professionals. But I've come to realize that actually he, he had a really good point. I mean, Barclay himself would have said, well, you know, rock, kicking a rock is just as mental or psychological as everything else. If everything's an idea, then so is the kicking, right? But the point that Johnson was really driving at is that there are uh, parts of our experiences that are common, such that, you know, when we have this experience of kicking a rock, we all have this 
uh, experience of us sort of facing a un- bit of unyielding reality. And so what Samuel Johnson was getting at was that, look, if, if we're all having these sort of common experiences of gravity and, uh, you know, pain and things like that, what explains that? It can't just be all our perception. There's got to be a common reality out there that ex- is explaining why we have all these experiences in common. That was the poet's point, and he's right to make that point. And what's unfortunate and weird about the situation we're living in now is that it seems as if we don't even have those common experiences as much anymore because we are living in such a polarized environment that it's harder to put our finger on what it is uh, that's like the rock, the thing that we all sort of are, are forced to confront in our own experiences. And you say this this struck me, uh, the causes of these divisions are complex, but one is surely the increasing personalization of our online lives. And we, we all experience this, of course. I wonder if you could, you know, enumerate that a little bit. Sure. I think uh, one of the, the sort of most ubiquitous features of our online lives right now is the personalization of those experiences of our movement across the digital space. If you think about it, um, you know, everything from the ads you read to the news that comes down your Facebook feed is really tailored to sort of satisfy your particular preferences. That's why when you, you know, sort of are casually looking at shoes on Amazon, that for the next uh, few days on your New York Times or Wall Street Journal or CNN or Fox News uh, site, you'll suddenly see advertisements for those sorts of shoes and shoes like them. And that's because your movement online is constantly being tracked by uh, various uh, corporate entities in order to sell you things and to bring you things that you want and get you the information you want. And that really gets to the, the cusp of how the magic happens, um, to the crux of how the magic happens on the Internet. Because the Internet gets us not just more information. Through personalization, it gets us the information we want. And that's fantastic when you're, you know, trying to buy shoes. It's really convenient. But when it comes to learning about, let's say, political issues or scientific issues, it can also be dangerous because because we're, the Internet brings us the information we want, that means that it also reflects our desires and preferences. And our desires and preferences, of course, also themselves reflect our biases and prejudices. So... What the Internet is really good at is bringing us information that already fits with our desires and preferences. But preferences, of course, don't equal truth. Just because I want something, I want to see news about uh, Hillary Clinton or I want to see news about Donald Trump uh, and and negative news, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's always going to reflect what's accurate, what's real, what's true. And... Therefore, the, you know, I think one of the things that a lot of us have been concerned about, not just me, but lots of uh, thinkers on this topic, have been concerned at how the personalization of the Internet is inflating our information bubbles and not bursting them. And this, uh, you say, can exploit the susceptibility I think we all have toward confirmation bias. You know, I'm, as you write in the piece, I'm right, everybody says so, at least what I'm reading on the Internet. I guess it exactly. exas- the Internet exacerbates this, you know, this um, uh, tendency of the Internet, the 
to uh, to take us where we want to go or suggest things that we where we want to go. It's a little creepy when those ads uh, you know pop up to the side and when I'm reading something in Google. Thanks. But I guess yeah. I like everyone else have accepted that as the price of of, of entry. But I guess what I what I'm not focusing on you're urging me to focus on when I'm doing that is uh, this might just be nudging me to uh, fall into the confirmation bias. Indeed. And one way that that can happen, for example, is through the, you know, the innocuous sort of program, or it seems like it, um, Google Complete, which is that uh, program that allows, or the algorithms that allow Google to predict what it is you're searching for and to suggest as you type something into their search bar various ways of completing your sentence. In a way, think about it, Google knows you so well that it can complete your sentences. And what that does, so when you type in something like you can try, people listening can try this right now, you type in, for example, is climate change A? And you'll often, depending on uh, where you are and your um, your previous searches and so forth, you might, some of you typing that in right now, might see a hoax uh, suggested or uh, is a is real suggested. And what Google is saying is, well, is that what you're searching for? Because it looks like that might be what you're searching for. Maybe that's what you're searching for, it's suggesting. And of course, that means that it's bringing you and fronting and bringing to the, the top of your attention various types of information uh, that may be bringing you to one source or another that might not reflect accurate information. And that's, uh, you're right, a reflection of what psychologists call confirmation bias. That is the human, the natural human tendency to believe those things that sort of fit what we already think or want to think uh, as being true. And even beyond confirmation bias, our susceptibility to that, you, you go on to say that it, this this articulates, I think, well, something that I've been feeling, I think many have been feeling, I didn't quite know how to articulate it. You say the increasing rejection of common reality, so you know, active rejection of common reality, and rejection of the value of caring about common reality, that that's happening, and that that's, some people can do this because you can just, dismiss your your opponent out of hand right they're just idiots and uh, that's right we have the majority so we don't have to care about those other people we don't have to live in that common reality that's right i i, I think uh you know the insularization the sort of retreating into our bubbles that the internet allows us to do that we are able to sort of curate our own information it doesn't mean that we don't know that there are people in other bubbles over there but it starts to drain our need to inter interact with them. We feel like we can get what we want intellectually and otherwise emotionally from our own social media contacts and our own uh, uh, community. And, of course, we see that offline as well as, as sociologists have tracked how Americans have uh, divided themselves geographically increasingly into political uh, uh, politically uh, oriented communities, uh, Democrats living near other Democrats and, and Republicans living near other Republicans and so forth, and that there's actually been geographical shift in that extent. But online, it's even easier because, of course, it just requires a click or a defriending or, uh, in order to uh, make your bubble even more pure ideologically. But, of course, I think there's more to it than that, too. I mean, I, I think um, one of the things I say in that piece is that uh, when we have um, people who are engaged in this sort of 
creation of their own bubbles are actively doing so, are doing so partly because, and all of us do this to some extent, because it, we feel some resentment towards the people who are not believing what we believe. And some sociologists have said this is particularly true on the right, that people, people who voted for Trump feel a sense of being left out of a wider community, that their story, their narrative is not being respected by the, by the um, uh, media the, and the intellectual elite. But I also see this on the left, where the left also feels like um, that aspects of the society are not uh, respecting their narrative. And what happens when people get into that sort of politics of resentment they start really caring, again, less and less about interacting with each other with the common reality. They care less and less about whether there is that unyielding rock out there that everybody can relate to uh, and has to think about and be concerned about. That's, uh, I think, a really disturbing trend, and it's something that we need to wake up to and start figuring out how to combat. Both in this piece and in your TED talk, uh, you you make reference to the Matrix. I thought that was interesting. The Matrix is a you know an interesting thought experiment. It, uh, their applications to uh, today's world, um, where you know the the reality that people Keanu Reeves thought he was living in wasn't the real reality, right? But there's there there was a character in the Matrix. You make reference to him who, even knowing that, preferred to live in the Matrix. Exactly. So the Matrix, is, as uh, most of us will recall, is just, uh, as you said, a sort of reality created by computers that have taken over the, the Earth, and people believe that they're living in, you know, in sort of modern contemporary society. Actually, according to the movie, we're all being, we're all actually just brains hooked up to machines and, uh, and being made to think that we're living in this reality. Um, so it's all what we perceive is all a big an illusion. And one of the characters realizes this; he's aware of this, um, but he decides that he just likes it better than in the illusion. The illusion, as he says at one point, famous lines from the movie, where uh, he says, "Ah, the steak and the wine, it's all fake." He says, "I know it's fake, but it's still delicious." And he he represents, I think, uh, the sort of bad faith that a lot of us can fall into. It's just more comfortable, you know, to insulate yourself in whether you're on the left or the right into your own information bubble, as I said, to wrap yourself in its cozy blanket um, and and just act in that same bad faith. And that's that, I think, is um, is unfortunate. But that and that's why I emphasize, however, that this is partly a matter of value. The guy in the Matrix he he's just he's valuing fantasy over reality and while that might be good for certain periods of time you know when we're playing video games or or catching a uh, a movie um like the matrix for example it's not great if you're thinking about trying to run a democracy and participate in a democracy and it's not great if you're trying to deal with real problems, problems like, for example, climate change or the opioid epidemic or any number of other actual uh, uh, challenges that our democracy and other democracies face. You need to be able to face up to reality to deal with these challenges. And the more that we try to shield ourselves from opinions that might disagree with our own, uh, the worse off we are in our ability to deal with those problems. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to uh, start getting into uh, how you'd have some suggestions on how we can, uh, uh, you know, 
agree that there's common reality. I, I guess you're saying that's a value, right? We need to accept this common reality exactly. and and uh, try to get there. And uh, that's an effort that we all need to make. Um, and we're going to talk more about this as we go along. Uh, the new TED Talk is out featuring uh, Michael Lynch. Uh, he is Professor of Philosophy and Director of Humanities at the University of Connecticut. He's leading UConn's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project. He's author most recently of The Internet of Us, Knowing More and Understanding Less in the Age of Big Data. More following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're uh, all worried, I think, about the problem of polarization and uh, the philosopher uh, Michael Lynch, who's joining us for the hour, uh, reminds us that we're not just polarized in our opinions or values these days, but in the very facts that we learn. And uh, he reminds us that wide swaths of the public live in very different information bubbles. Um, he explains that to solve this problem of knowledge polarization, we've got to understand that we live in common reality. And, I, and uh, adhere to that value, we'll get to talking about that as we go along. A very important discussion, of course. You can join it at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or to our email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Michael Patrick Lynch is a professor of philosophy and director of the humanities at University of Connecticut. He's leading UConn's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project. He's also author most recently of The Internet of Us, Knowing More and Understanding Less in the Age of uh, Big Data. So, uh, Michael Lynch, I wonder if you could uh, take us into a thought experiment that you have n- n- both in your book and your TED Talk, uh, a perhaps not-too-distant future where uh, we have our smartphones miniaturized. They're hooked up directly to our brains. Yeah, so uh, imagine just that. Imagine having your smartphone miniaturized and hooked up into your brain. If you had that sort of brain chip, we might call it, um, you'd be able to upload and download uh, to the Internet uh, faster than the speed of tweet even, at the speed of thought. Uh, You'd be accessing Wikipedia or social media would be, at least from the inside, a lot like consulting your memory. And, of course, that would be uh, pretty amazing in certain ways. It would certainly make our experience with the Internet even more intimate than it is now. But the question I want to raise and what I ask people to think about is, would it allow you to know more just by having that brain chip? Um, Because, after all, just because a way of accessing information is more intimate and faster doesn't mean that the information you're getting is more reliable. And it might actually, uh, if you think about it, raise certain issues about what the difference is, really, between your own thinking and reality. It could challenge and help sort of threaten our grasp on the distinction between our own thoughts and, and that which is uh, outside of us. And that's partly because at this point we would be, you know, accessing information that others have or other sites would be a lot like thinking. And so our ability to discriminate between their thinking and our thinking might itself be challenged. So I think there's a, this thought experiment raises all sorts of philosophical questions and questions that we need to start asking now because uh, – a few years ago, when I first started raising this around the country and, and various places, I would go and give this thought experiment. And people, you know, initially would say, just 10 years ago, would say, well, you know, that's sort of crazy. That's, that's pie in the sky. Nowadays, people don't say that at all. 
<laughs> they're like, hmm, yeah, well, that could be coming. Well, exactly. So we need to start asking these ethical questions um, and epistemological questions now. So the questions that I'm particularly interested in about this is what I think it challenges. It raises this, shows us how the the issues that we were talking about before the break, problems of knowledge polarization, are going to get even more fierce and difficult to resolve if we allow this sort of technology to go forward without thinking about its consequences. Because uh, if we're all having these sort of brain chips, then it's going to be, one would think, that the sort of information bubbles that we're all already creating for ourselves with our smartphones, our access to social media in that way, uh, are only going to become more rigid and less permeable. So I think this thought experiment raises all sorts of uh, interesting questions about um, the, the sorts of problems that we were talking about before the break. Yeah, and very important as well. You know, it's high stakes, right? If we, uh, we can't we can't even agree on the facts, right? Um, it, it, exactly. Um, so you say most knowing now is Google knowing. What do you mean by that? Well, I think a lot of what we're um, doing right now uh, when we know, and this includes me as along with everybody else, right? And what's, the, what's our go-to source of information nowadays? It's Google and, and, or, or other relevant search engines. And there's, in many ways, there's, of course, nothing wrong with that. All, I feel 100% smarter when I have my phone nearby because I can access so much information. And all of us, of course, know the common sort of thing where somebody would get into dispute over some minor pit of fact with somebody, and everybody races their, to their phone, right, to determine who's, uh, who's right and who's wrong. So it's our, our, it's our, our go-to piece of information, uh, sorts of information. It's, it's how we learn things now. But... While that's incredibly useful in all sorts of ways, Google knowing is also a type of outsourcing. We're really outsourcing our cognitive effort. We're outsourcing it to uh, other people and algorithms, a whole network of other people and algorithms. And that outsourcing has a downside, just like all other economic outsourcing has downsides. Because what we're really doing is offloading our intellectual effort. But some, some deeper sorts of knowing, what I call understanding in the book, deeper sort of knowing and learning occurs when we actually do the work ourselves, when we actually work through the mathematical proof and don't just look up the answer, when we, actually, when we go out and talk to actual people and, uh, about their views and opinions, when we go into the field and do the experiment. We, these, this sort of uh, activity, this sort of experience uh, brings with us brings to us uh, a deeper sort of knowing and understanding about the whys and the hows and not just the list of facts that Google can give us. So I think one of the things we, you know, when we talk about trying to get uh, ourselves into a space in which we're valuing common reality more, one of the most important things we really need to do is in our, in our education um, infrastructure is to start emphasizing more this active type of understanding that involves actual participation and thinking through things yourself. Types of uh, active learning that don't as much require so much outsourcing, whether it's to Google or Encyclopedia Britannica. 
And I could see one argument against that, and perhaps why we've gone in the other mm-hmm. direction, um, is it's, sure. it seems to be slower, right? You can learn, you can learn, quote unquote, learn a lot more by just looking it up rather than you know working through the proof yourself. Absolutely, I, I absolutely can, and that's the great thing about Google knowing is it does speed up our access to information, and it allows us to, for example, also to just not clutter our minds with all sorts of facts that we can just look up when we need them. So I'm not disputing any of that, and I think that's fantastic. That's why I say that we actually are, in one sense, of Google knowing, knowing more than we ever have before. All of us, um, we all, in some sense, those of us who have access to the internet, know more just by virtue of having that access. But uh, while it, what I'm talking about is partly the development of certain skills, skills for understanding. And in order to develop those sorts of skills, like any sort of skills, you need to be able to practice and do some of the work yourself. You're not going to develop skills in basketball just by Googling them. Okay? Yeah. yeah, that's a good uh, example. That, you actually have to get out on the court and do some work. And the same goes for intellectual labor, too. You actually have to get up there and mix it up and uh, have a conversation like what we're having now. Mm. Think, throw things back and forth. And if you don't do that at all, and if you're not trained at that early on into your intellectual development, you're going to find yourself uh, a much more passive learner, and that's not good. No, but part of, you know, part of this is, is a high-stakes element of this, I guess I could put it that way, I just been as you've been talking about I've been imagining kind of a thought experiment for myself and I that I don't do much and maybe I should do more of which is seek out people who don't have the same political beliefs that I have and engage in a face-to-face conversation. Yeah, I think you know sometimes I I I try to do that myself and I think all of us uh can can benefit from that sort of thing. One of the things we're studying here at Connecticut in, in this uh, project you mentioned, Humility and Conviction in Public Life, are we have 10 research teams that we're working with around the world, all of whom are studying different ways of trying to uh, make those sorts of conversations, whether they happen online or off, more productive. How do, we, how do we figure out ways so that when you go to have that conversation with somebody on an airplane or uh, with your, you know, your, your extended family or cousin of yours or so forth who doesn't have a, you know, at Thanksgiving dinner, how, do you have, how can we make those sorts of conversations productive and helpful and actually increase the ability to, for us to engage in dialogue? And not just, of course, just for you and me, but also for politicians. And uh, one of the things that I think, for example, we're already learning is that sometimes it can help to get into a conversation about, let's say, alternative views by approaching it somewhat elliptically. That is, perhaps talking about some piece of literature or a movie or something that you both have in common, that you both can sort of, that common bit of ground that might not on its surface be political, but will allow you to navigate some ideas, some ideas Get talking about ideas in general, and then when you start talking about those ideas in general, whether they're about art or about other things, it's easier to use to, to then branch off into talking about or to deal with disagreements when they do arise. It seems like, uh, at least what I've perceived, is what's increased in recent years. Maybe it's already been there, but at least it's, my perception has been increasing, is that... Um, at least political discussions become seen by all sides as a zero-sum game. 
and we have to win at all costs. And uh, there's a dehumanization of, of the you know the enemy, quote unquote. Right. When you do that, it's, it seems like the, the, we view the stakes as so high that we can't come together. We don't, you know, we can't risk that. We have to just win. Right. I think that sort of attitude is you put your finger on something that is um, a real barrier to uh, engaging the sort of dialogue we were just talking about. And I would sum that up by saying that right now, uh, we're living in a culture that is marked by an attitude we might call intellectual or epistemic arrogance, which is an unwillingness to see yourself as being able to improve in terms of your beliefs. And I think that, you know, I think uh, from my, where I stand, whatever, in fact, I think from a lot of where a lot of people stand, whatever your political spectrum, I mean, whether you agree or disagree with uh, President Trump's policies, I think lots of people would say that, he personifies that sort of attitude that I was just talking about, a sort of attitude of arrogance. And that's unfortunate, but it also reflects he's, he didn't create it. I think he's a symptom of a much larger cultural problem, which is this, that we, the culture and in general, the, the technology that we're using right now that we were talking about before the break, and the sorts of uh, dehumanization sort of attitudes that you just mentioned are all feeding into sort of celebration of this type of dogmatism and arrogance that we have about our own beliefs. We've got it all figured out. We know what's right or wrong. We think of ourselves as no, have knowing it all. And this know-it-all culture that we're living in is a really big problem. You just joined us. We're uh, talking with uh, Michael Lynch. He is Director of Humanities at the University of Connecticut. He's leading UConn's uh, Humility and Conviction Public Life Project. He's just talking about that. Author most recently, uh, most recent book is The Internet of Us, Knowing More and Understanding Less in the Age of uh, Big Data. Um, so we have uh, jumped to uh, the third uh, element of uh, uh, common reality. I want to address all three. And you talk about these in your t- new TED Talk. People can find uh, Professor Lynch's new TED Talk as well. But I want to expand this since we brought it up. Uh, this idea of humility, intellectual uh, humility. Um, and you say that we tend to confuse arrogance and confidence. Yes, I think we, t- you know, that's a, I, I think that's a human tendency. Uh, again, that's not a new problem, like confirmation bias. It's been with us as long as humans um, have existed. Uh, it's natural to, especially in times of crisis, to go with a person who swaggers a bit, uh, who shouts the loudest, um, puffs themselves up. Uh, the signs of, of arrogance, and to think that they, because they are asserting conf- uh, in what sounds like a confident manner, that uh, they they know what to do, then we tend to equate that with actually <laughs> think that, that they actually know what they want to do, and that doesn't always follow. So I tend, I think, real confidence, however, doesn't, and I think a, a lot of this is something that hopefully a lot of folks will also have in their own experience, in my own experience. Uh, people who I've met who have real confidence are not often the people that are the loudest people in the room. The people who have real confidence in, in their abilities and in their knowledge are also people who are willing to, to admit when they don't know what they're talking about. Because the confidence that comes with true expertise is confidence that allows you to say, yes, I can do this. And no, I don't think I can do that yet. 
There's things I can improve on. Because our tendency to want to be, to, to go to arrogance, and believe me, I'm speaking from personal experience. I'm a professor after all. You know, if you look up the, in the dictionary, you know, intellectual arrogance, you're going to find a picture of somebody like me. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think that from personal experience, it seems to me that arrogance is actually a type of self-defensiveness. It's a it's a tendency to 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 want to you know feel you feel inadequate, so you compensate by by being an aggressive know-it-all. So I think one of the things that I, we're trying to do in our 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 project, and one of the things I'm signaling in the TED talk, for example, is that if we want to get back to the idea of that we're living in a common reality, we all need to start realizing that. Um, it takes some effort to work at having some intellectual humility. That is, seeing yourself as open to improvement uh, by the evidence and experience of other people. That is, that your worldview is open to improvement by the evidence and experience of other people. That's more than just being open to change in your views. Um, it's also more than just being open to self-improvement. It's not just about you know improving yourself with your own genius. It's actually being willing to see that you can learn something from somebody who has a different view than your own. Now that's you know you can you can have that attitude and 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 not and find that you know with some people or they don't bring any new evidence to the table, so you don't learn anything. So you're not going to always learn things, but you have to have the attitude of being open to that. And one of the things that I think is important about this attitude is that it actually plays a really important role in democracy. Democracies can't function if they don't have citizens with conviction. An apathetic electorate is no electorate at all. On the other hand, democracies also can't function if those citizens don't aren't willing to listen and maybe even learn from one, those who have differing convictions on their own. So we need both of these things, humility and conviction. And one of the things that I think is worth emphasizing is that our attempt to find, to encourage intellectual humility is going to have to take place both on a personal level and on a public level. Hmm. I want to talk about both of those. Uh, I found myself thinking as you were, you were you know, talking about uh, humility and conviction, uh, you know, cheering you on. Yes, Professor Lynch, that's exactly right, and that's exactly what the other side needs, and uh, maybe I don't particularly need that because I'm... <laughs> already there, which which uh, you know I'm probably not, but that's a you know that's that's a difficulty that's a barrier to us all getting there. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we always tend to think that the other side are the people that you know are are being led by blind conviction, and we're the ones that have got it figured out. And one of the things I'm saying, it's a simple thing, is that whenever we have those feelings, and I have them quite often too, when I'm reading something or what have you, uh, that that's the moment that you might want to sort of stop yourself and say, well, okay, uh, yeah, I don't agree with this person, but, you know, may, may, maybe I shouldn't be so confident in my absolutely supremely overconfident in my own opinions. And I think that uh, we also need to remember, though, that this is, I was saying, it's not just a, it's, while each of us need as individuals to reflect on these values, we also need to encourage institutional structures that are, that themselves can, if not exemplify them, 
push us, push people or nudge people into having um, less dogmatic convictions and more humility with regard to their own worldview. And I think one of those certain ways that we can do that, for example, is I think right now that uh, your own profession, uh, journalism, is incredibly important um, right now for our democracy because one of the things that good journalism can do is to encourage um, uh, the reflection on your own views by bringing to the table evidence from those who have very different views. And what we can see is that when journalism doesn't, journalistic inquiry doesn't go as well as it might have, we sometimes face problems with that. For example, there's been a lot of discussion about following the election last year, the, in the presidential election in the, in the U.S., uh, whether journalists uh, um, had, let's say from the New York Times or the Washington Post, did all that they should have in diving deep into the views of people who, let's say, weren't their readers, right? And um, that's been led to a lot of sort of discussion in the journalistic community about that. That's good. I think we knew need to have sort of discussions about that. I also think we need to encourage in, in our education um, the sorts of critical thinking that I was talking about earlier. Um, that's not a new thought, but it, it continues to be a problem in American education that we don't encourage enough, I think, uh, basic philosophical uh, thinking early on in, um, in our educational experience. So it's something that we all need to do, but it's also something that we can do from an institutional level. And what, some of what I, people, if you look at the, uh, if people are interested, they can join our newsletter, they can check our website and look at the 10 different research projects we're working with uh, around the world that are trying to, you know, also do things like figure out, we're trying to figure out how to redesign news sites commenting platforms. How do we get people who are commenting on news sites and on YouTube even to engage in more reflective behavior. That's a tough nut to crack, um, but we have some people working on it. It'll be interesting to see what they come up with. Yeah, that is very interesting. It, uh, I don't know, do you, do you have any preliminary results? Because that's where, I mean, it's very democratic, right? You, you, uh, right. you have access, you can comment, but it seems to go straight to the lowest common denominator. It makes you depressed about, you know, democratic discourse. Right. Well, it, it, we do have some preliminary results um, uh, that are one, one set of things that would, on a related topic that I think would be interesting to talk about. With uh, some very preliminary results we had run from a study from last summer, and we're rerunning again this summer here at UConn, uh, is it, it's, if you introduce concepts of intellectual humility and certain dialogue techniques to uh, uh, a group of people, you might hope that your prediction might be, well, you know, compared to the control groups, this group might actually um, find themselves less dogmatic in their convictions, less strong in their convictions, and in one sense, perhaps, based on that rating, more open-minded. One of the interesting preliminary results we had, though, was seemingly depressing at first, because it showed that actually we, we gave people the tools to be less dogmatic, and at the end of the study, it seemed as if that particular group, the one we predicted would be less dogmatic, actually was more sure of their opinions at the end. Now, but, and this is the other shoe that drops, what's really interesting is that the people in that group, in that um, 
in, in the group in which we introduced these tools for intellectual humility, at the end of the day, although they were more sure of their convictions, they also felt that everybody else in the group was listening to them. They felt that they were in more, they had more common ground with the people that they disagreed with. So while they didn't necessarily change their view, for example, on the death penalty, they did feel like the people in the group that they intersected with were more intellectually tumble, and they felt that those people were worth talking about and wanted to talk with them more about these issues. That is a really interesting result because it suggests that something, a way of figuring out the balance between humility and conviction, because what it suggests is that maybe we shouldn't try to get people to have less conviction. What we should get them to see is that there is a possibility that they can interact with others in a way that's more productive, a way that allows them to see that everybody else to see them as listening and that they see everybody else as listening. Hmm. That may not be the best result, but it's an interesting and fascinating second best. Yeah, and, and there's some hope in that. Uh, uh, perhaps exactly. a, a way forward. Yeah. Uh, let's take another break. When we come back, we'll have our last segment with uh, Michael Patrick Lynch. He is Professor of Philosophy and Director of the Humanities at the University of Connecticut. He's leading UConn's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project. He's author most recently of The Internet of Us, Knowing More and Understanding Less in the Age of Big Data. And he has a new TED Talk out titled How to See Past Your Own Perspective and Find Truth. More following this break. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking this hour with Michael Lynch. He is professor of philosophy and director of the humanities at University of Connecticut. He's leading UConn's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project. And he's author most recently of The Internet of Us, Knowing More and Understanding Less in the Age of Big Data. He has a new TED Talk out, and uh, that is titled How to See Past Your Own Perspective and uh, Find uh, Truth. And uh, he says uh, we we all are talking about uh, polarization in values, but uh, even more so, even more worrying, we're not just polarized in our opinions or values, but in the facts, the very facts that we learn and agree on. And uh, so he, uh, we've been talking about intellectual humility as a uh, part of the solution that we all need to get back to a common reality, that that's a value, to reaching out for that. Um, and so you say, uh, Michael Lynch, that their uh, common reality ri- relies on three things, and we've been talking about number three, intellectual humility. Uh, let's talk a little bit here about uh, number one, belief in truth. Uh, there, you know, some say there is no objective truth, and in fact, you say in your TED talk that our reaction to fake news, this is the very idea of fake news, the very term is an example of bad faith about truth. That's right, uh, because right now fake news. The term has come to mean in everyday parlance just any news story that I don't happen to agree with. So anything that I don't happen to agree with that comes in the news is going to be fake news. And that is an example of how our bad faith to the truth, towards the truth, that sort of idea that, you know, why don't we just, you know, accept fantasy instead of deal with reality why don't we pretend that we're why don't we just accept living in the matrix so to speak that we were talking about before that's an example of how that uh really hits the ground and affects our action because fake news is 
is not just news that you disagree with. It's news that's false, that's been, in many cases, intentionally propagated and created and manufactured for the purpose of misleading people. To say, to take that term and then start using it just as a label for what it is that we don't happen to agree with is is uh, a bit of doublespeak that is uh, really illustrates uh, our troubled relationship with, that we're having as a culture with truth. One of the things that makes um, uh, a, this sort of troubled relationship come about is just the very knowledge polarization that you were mentioning. We're, as we've been talking about, we disagree over more than just values. We disagree over the facts. And more than that, we even disagree over which sources of information are reliable. And once things get to that point, it's really difficult to sort of fight your way up to, to, to any sort of uh, sensible discussion. But it also can encourage people to have adopt a really cynical attitude. As one political commentator put it not long ago, um, well, there really aren't any facts anymore. And that's an attitude that I have found alarmingly, I think, uh, that has, uh, is, is often prevalent in these sorts of discussions. Because people throw up their hands and they just say, well, there really aren't any facts. There's no way to really tell what's true or false, so I'm just going to go with whatever my gut is. Um, that uh, is not a new attitude. It's an old philosophical idea. goes back at least as far as uh, Protagoras, the Greek philosopher, who said that man is the measure of all things. And, uh, but it's still a very troubling thought. Um, the, the reason that I think it's particularly troubling is, well, first of all, it's just um, the idea that we're the measure of all things is a symptom of that arrogance that we were talking about before. And it's not, of course, accurate. Uh, you're not, you know, each of us are not the measure of all things. Um, in fact, we do know that there are things, realities out there that we need to deal with. Climate change is one. I talk about that in the New York Times piece. But more bluntly, we know that bullets kill people. We can't flap our, our arms and fly. There is a reality that's out there, and ignoring it can get you hurt. So the idea that we should just give up on truth and accept that, well, it's all just propaganda, that cynicism is just, you know, it's just not very plausible. Hmm. But it can also be a dangerous thought politically, because the idea that man is the measure of all things inevitably becomes the man is the measure of all things. That is, we allow, if we start thinking that, well, truth is just manufactured, then we're going to start falling into the idea that, well, you know, what passes for truth amongst those in power will be the same thing as truth. And that's a, that's a dangerous thought. Another, um, I want to just mention this one and then uh, go on to connecting these, what we talked about, back to democracy to, to kind of finalize that part of the discussion. Here at the end, we just have a couple minutes left. But another pillar, you might say, of common reality, another path to common reality, re reclaiming common reality, is, you say, encouraging the pursuit of more active ways of knowing about the world. And so we've talked about that a bit earlier in the in the program. If you just download facts, that's passive, but uh, you have to be active in, in actually understanding. I want to uh, end the the discussion here the last couple of minutes, uh, Professor Lynch, with um, a statement you make in this, uh, this piece in the New York Times, without common reality, 
we would have nothing with which to engage. And you say democracies don't work if we don't acknowledge we all live in the same world, facing the same problems. We talked about early in the program, how, uh, program that uh, you know the temptation is to live in your bubble, to deny common reality, easier that way, much harder to engage, but that uh, democracy depends on it. Absolutely. Uh, if we don't accept that we're all living at least in the same world, on the same planet, then it's hard to know how we can even get to the point of, of uh, dealing with the problems that that world presents us with. Um, we need to acknowledge, and, and we're at a point, you know, that's, that's a, I, I, might, I might end on this note. That's, a, we might think, is an obvious truth that we live in a common reality. But sometimes the most important things um, are things that we overlook because they're right there in front of our face, and we forget how important they are. That's that's the case with the thought of a common reality. We need to remind ourselves and our leaders that we do live in a common reality. Democracies can't function if we don't accept at least that premise. We've got to realize that all the perspectives that we have, all the different opinions we have, are really perspectives and opinions about one thing that, that's in common. To bring it back to what you started out with, which is the discussion about whether everything is you know, in our head or mental uh, and in a fantasy and whether everything's an illusion or whether there's actually things out there like rocks that we need to deal with. Well, there are. And if we don't acknowledge that thing, if we don't acknowledge that there's reality out there, Reality finds a way of getting our attention. And before it's too late, before things really get bad, we need to start acknowledging that rock, that common reality that exists for us and which we all have to deal with. Uh, Professor, we just have about a minute and a half left. Uh, We've had an interesting comment come in by email. I want to address this just very quickly. This is Carl. He says, I consider myself well-informed. I use a variety of news sources. I'll admit mostly on the liberal side. When I have a question on something, I go to several different sources to find out. I also have trust in our institutions like NASA, CDC, FBI, etc. How do you have a conversation with someone who doesn't trust any of those organizations and believes that all the news sources and that science are fake news? I found it's nearly impossible to have a normal conversation. Well, the, definitely, Carl's put, it, put uh, the you know finger on exactly the problem. I think my own advice uh, that I find helpful and that we're studying, we have, you know, we're working on in this project, is to, if you actually are trying to have a, a real conversation uh, and, and hopefully one in person with folks like that, it's probably best to start with something that you do find that is in common, to find some ideas or set of ideas um, uh, that you can share in common, and and only then branch out into the into the issues that you find yourself disagreeing about establishing common space and is important because it establishes some empathy and once we have some empathy with each other then we might be able to find ourselves uh uh able to walk a little get a little bit higher on the ladder uh towards consensus 
Very good. We'll leave it there. And a very interesting discussion. Uh, we've been joined by uh, Michael Lynch. He is Professor of Philosophy and Director of the Humanities at the University of Connecticut. He's leading the UConn's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project. He's author of The Internet of Us, Knowing More and Understanding Less in the Age of Big Data. And he has a new TED Talk out that you can uh, search for as well. Professor Lynch, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thanks for listening to Access Utah.